Hi. Just a heads up before we start. There's a brief discussion of suicide in this episode. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, information and resources are available at www.wanttalkaboutit.com. That's www.wanttalkaboutit.com. Welcome to the companion podcast for the Netflix documentary series, Waco American Apocalypse. With me today is a very special guest, uh, Robert Rodriguez, former ATF agent uh, who was, had an illustrious career and was working undercover at the time of the raid and had a very intense and moving story, which he'll tell you about today. Robert, like, let's rewind to when you're first tapped to go undercover. Um, what's that like? And kind of talk about the preparation that's involved for you getting ready to go into the compound. You know, what you have to do, what they tell you, what your cover is. Take me through it a little bit. I, I can just tell you that um, I had some partners that were kind of crazy. <laughs> and and you kind of have to be crazy to do to do it. You can't be a nice guy. You can't be a something you do and it comes natural to you. As far as uh, doing the undercover, really nobody tells you how to do it. There's something that's uh, built in to the agent, and that was something that was already built into me. Uh, it takes a big it takes a big set of balls to walk into a situation where in, uh, you know it's life and death stakes and you're having to present yourself as somebody you're not right the Davidian case that was bigger than I ever done and uh, I couldn't imagine how it was going to be when uh, Davy Aguilera called me tell me who Davy Aguilera is for our audience uh, you know who may or may not know who's Davy Aguilera Davy was uh, also an ATF agent. He was the uh, case agent for Operation Trojan Horse. And he was uh, stationed in Austin at the time. We helped break him in, and we became very good friends. I mean, to this day, we're, we're still very good friends. He, uh, he called me, and uh, he was working on this big case. It's on, a, it's on a cult, he said. They're buying guns and and uh, making explosives, and we think we're doing, they're doing this and that. So uh, he says, I need somebody that I know that can uh, work undercover and infiltrate. And I said, yeah, I'll do it for you, Dave. So when you, when you first go in there, like, what's, your, what's the cover that you have? And, like, tell me as vividly as you remember that first day that you kind of roll in there and what your impressions are, what you see, what you think, what you feel. Well, I had to figure out how we're going to do it. I need to look at the place and see how it was going to work. Uh, you know, the operation. I had no idea how the operation was going to go. He called me about December, and it wasn't until about January, middle of January, something like that, that I finally got to look at the place for the first time. Because I had never seen seen the compound. I was thinking it was going to be a small house, you know, here, here and there. And when we drove by and I looked at it, for the audience, excuse my language, but ex the exact words were like, fuck, what am I getting myself into? I mean, it was over overwhelming when you saw it. You know, it wasn't a small place, it was a big, I wonder why they called it a compound. 
And what's the, what's what's the first what's the first thought that's running through your head? Are you thinking like, fuck, you know, what's this going to be like, and how serious is this going to be? Like, or what's what's running through your head? I wasn't sure how we were going to do it. To tell you the truth, we had six guys that were together, and uh, we had to figure out how we were going to do this. We had a place to stay right across from the compound. We called it the UC House. We stayed there, and from there. We set up cameras for surveillance and... How old were you uh, at the time? 41, 42, something like that. And everybody else was in the early, early 30s and uh, much younger than I was. So how does, it, how does it go down? How do you first make contact? Like, what is it, what happens? The operation at first was a surveillance operation. Uh, find, try to find out their method of operation, what they did every day. You know, come out, go in, drive out, whatever routines that they had, that's what we we're trying to find out. That way, make it easier, or we could find out when was the best time to execute a search warrant. So that's what it started as. As we went on, then they started, well, we need to go in. We need to go in. We need to find somebody to go in and make contact and, you know, see what's going on. In a place like that, you just don't go in. You know what I mean? I knew nothing about the main target. You know, you want to know something about the person that you're going to go and, you know, try to infiltrate. So uh, I needed to know something about them. And uh, I had a weekend coming, so I came home and uh, actually went to a priest that I used to know when, when I was in high school because I needed to know something about Seven Seals. I had never heard about Seven Seals. So when I went there, he said, oh, we're talking about the Book of Revelations, the Book of John. So he went over with me, and he gave me a pretty good rundown. So I left, I came back to Waco. And when I got back, Jeff comes in, and he says, he was all worried. And he said, man, Robert, when uh, Cerebin keeps, keeps asking, we need to go in. When are we going, when are we going to go in? When are we going to go in? He said, I don't know what to tell him. And uh, you know what I'm talking about when I say Cerebin, right? Yeah. He was the, really the one calling the shots for the raid, even though he was just an assistant agent in charge. His first name was Chuck Cerebin. So uh, we went back to a UC house to kind of work out a plan. And we were all there, you know, going back and forth, back and forth. And I was looking at the compound when they were all discussing. And uh, they had a horse walker right in front of the compound. I said, well, how? I said, we just drive in there and ask them if they want to sell the, the horse walker and see what happens. So that's what we did. We drove in and we parked close to the, uh, the walker. There were some guys there already, you know, and... Uh, and so we got there, we just got, we just got swamped with a lot of guys, with Davidians, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, you know, got walked up to them and I asked, uh, who's in charge? And they kind of opened up and they're in the, from the back comes this guy. He says, I am. He says, oh, how you doing? We live across the street. And he says, yeah, we know. We've been watching you. And he says, uh, my name is David Koresh. I said, hello, David. Pleasure meeting you. We just stopped to see if uh, you were interested in selling the horse walker. And he said, no, it's not for sale. I said, okay, well, that's fine. And we're just wondering. And he had the flag of David flying over the compound. 
And I asked him, is that the flag of David? And he says, yes. Oh, what, do you, what do you all believe in here? He says, we believe in the book of Revelations. And I said right away, I said, that's like the four horsemen and the apocalypse. He says, yeah, you know about that? And I said, well, I know a little bit. I've, uh, and he says, uh, well, won't you come on and we'll, I'll invite you so we can discuss the book of Revelations. And I said, oh, yeah, great. I like that. And he says, I'll let you know. He says, okay, thank you. And we left. And eventually he called me and that's how I got in. So when you go in to, you know, go back for that Bible study that he's given, what, what's your impression of this guy? Is he like, how well does he know the Bible? How good of a speaker is he? Like, you know, what's your, what's your take on him? What's your read? I tell you, the Bible, I mean, he could read that Tucker, I mean, left and right, up and down, sideways, I don't care how you look at it. I mean, he talked about that Bible like he had it memorized. So that's something that he was well-versed in. You know, he always talked about the beast, you know, the lion, which always referred to either the government or ATF or other agencies. But every time we went in there, the, like the first time, for example, I went in there for two hours, and he called. That's one thing that my agency did not realize. I did not initiate meetings because I got to know him. He was a very suspicious person. You didn't try to push him into something. So I always waited for him to call me, to invite me in. That way, there was no suspicion as to what I was doing. So how scared are you? Like, you know, when, you, when you're going in and he's initiating these calls and, and you don't necessarily have time to prep and he's coming to you, how do you keep cool? Uh, how do you keep smooth? Taylor, I was never scared when I went in there, to tell you the truth. I couldn't be scared. Because people see this when they're looking at you. So when I do something like this, I'm just like, like I'm talking to you right now, I mean... Hey, how you doing? Or whatever. And if I had to hug somebody, I'll hug somebody. Or, uh, you know, I'll just act as nat natural as, uh, as I can. And when I was in there you with... You just flip the switch and it's game time. Yeah, I mean, I mean when I'm there with him, I sit down and, and he gave me a Bible. I want you to keep this. This is your Bible. So when you come in, you can use your Bible to follow when I read. And that's what I did. When I walk in and... He would start with the chapter, and I would open up to that chapter, and he would read and read and read and read. <laughs> and it was like, oh, please stop, you know? It was like, oh. And I would sit there for, I mean, two hours, and he could read that Bible for as long as he wanted. So leading up to... Um you know, to the night before the raid, right? Like, I think up until the 27th, I think you go back in there and you're in there till late at night, midnight or something, the, the day before the raid. And then there wasn't mm -hmm. actually a plan to have you go in the day of the raid. Tell us, like, yeah. kind of jump forward to, to, you know, getting close to that and, and, and talk us through the story. Yeah. For me, this is when things started kind of going bad because we were at uh, Fort Hood, that's what we're doing all the planning after it was the night before. And uh, I had already told Koresh that I would probably not be coming back anymore. He wanted me to become a member of the Davidians. 
and they asked me if I would be interested in coming down for two weeks and staying here with them and going through the studies. I said, well, I can do it on March the 1st, because at that time, the raid was, was scheduled for the 1st, March the 1st. And that day I went back and uh, we were at Fort Hood and they changed the day of the raid. And uh, after we all had the meetings, uh, Sherman comes up to me and says, there's a uh, article coming out uh, on the Messiah and we need to find out what the reaction is. This is the Waco Tribune papers publishing right. the Sinful Messiah series, right? That's correct. I told him, I said, I can't do that, Chuck. I already told him I wasn't gonna come back till March the 1st. And if I go in there and just knock on the door, it makes him suspicious. That's why I always wanted him to call me to go in. Chuck says, we, we got to, we got to, we got to do it, we got to do it. And man, it bothered me as soon as he told me that because I knew he, they were making me change from my method of operation. Yeah, you knew the plan. And, you knew you knew the plan they don't, was fucked, they don't, and you were they being didn't forced. Understand. Yeah, they don't. They didn't understand that. I don't even know if they ever did any undercover work, or <laughs> you know. But you know what won't. you have to do as an undercover. So when son- suddenly the bosses are changing the game plan, yeah, they, they, it's putting you in a dangerous situation. And that's the worst thing they can do. That's the worst thing they can do. They, you know, sometimes they'll come and say, "Okay, be sure and ask him this. Okay, be sure to do this, and be sure that when you do this, you do this." It's like, you don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to ask him this. If something comes up during a conversation that's kind of within the same topic, then you can throw that stuff. But you just can't come out with uh, stuff that makes somebody suspicious. So what's that like when you go back in, when they send you back in? And I was, man, it was a tough night trying to figure out how in the heck am I going to go in there without causing any suspicion. It was a terrible night. And then I said, I got it. I said, I'll go buy a paper and uh, it'll have the Sinful Messiah, which is part two, I believe it was. And I'll take that and go knock on the door and show it to, to David and see what happens. I go knock on the door. One of the guys comes out, I don't remember who it was. And I said, David, here, look, I got paper. Look, did y'all see the paper? And he says, no, oh, come on in. So I walk in. And that's when I sat down with him there at the floor, looking at the paper and was reading it. And then he took the Bible out and started showing me what he was talking about in the Bible. And I was sitting right next to him. You know, I got to where I, I spoke to him like, like he was my best friend. And they came in and said, David, you have a phone call. And uh, he didn't listen to him. And then he came back and said, David, you have a phone call. And he didn't listen to him. And then the third time he comes in and says, David, you got a call from England. And he gets up real quick. But I later found out who England was. Okay, and uh, he walked and walked out. And, and then when he came back, everything was different. I mean, everything How? had what changed. The whole mood has changed. He went from being normal to shaking and, you know, and, and his voice was had changed. And he was like, you know, trembling and... Got, got the Bible and was trying to go back to the Bible. And, and like I said, I was kind of close to him by then. And, and I grabbed the Bible and I said, are you all right, David? He just gave it to me and he got up. There was a, two windows and 
He went to the one on the left first and I was watching him. He looks outside and he says, they're coming. They're coming, Robert. Then he goes to the next one and he says, they're coming. The time has come. Then he goes back to the other one and says, the National Guard and the ATF are coming. And as soon as he said that, right away when he said National Guard, I said, uh-oh, he knows. He knows. Because the National Guard were working with us on this raid. You know, he was still walking around back and forth, talking about the ATF, that they got me once and never get me again. And there I was, like, looking around, thinking, trying to find a way out. And I was thinking about going through the window or going through the door, to the front door, but I feared I could not make it to the front door because by then, more Davidian males came in. So there was no way I was going to make it. So I thought about maybe I had a chance going through the window. Since he was there, so I'll probably take Koresh with me right through the window. And I mean, I was thinking, but at the same time, I was saying to myself, just relax, you know, be cool, relax, relax, relax. Trying to get my body to just stay normal as can be. So I got up and I said, well, David, I said, I got, I looked at time and said, I need to get out. I need to meet the guys who are going to go out for breakfast. And I stood up, I was still standing up, just looking at him and wondering what was going to happen. He finally comes up to me and, and he says, okay, Robert. He looks at me and he puts his hand out. And right when he puts his hand out, I said, he knows what I am. So I shook his hand and I said, okay, David, okay. That's what I told him. To me, it was a gesture of uh, both of us all of a sudden just kind of knew each other. You know what I mean? And, uh, and then he goes like this and gives a little nod and the guys kind of opened up so I could start walking to the front door. And, you know, I'm thinking all this time, hey, they're going to shoot me in the back. So what are, they, what, are, what are their plans? You know, so I'm walking real slow. Uh, don't rush it. Don't look scared. Don't act scared. Got to the front door and uh, then I walked outside to my blazer. And uh, I got in and I couldn't put the key in the ignition. I, I'll never forget this. I mean, I was just scared as can be. And what I had to do, I grabbed my other hand and put the key in the ignition. And then I went to UC House. And that's, that's how I got out of there. Then I go back to the UC house and, and Kavanaugh was there. That was a specialist in charge, Kavanaugh. And uh, Kavanaugh, I told him, they know. They know we're coming. And Kavanaugh says, call Sherbin. So I called Sherbin. He was at the command post. And I told him, Chuck, Chuck, they know, Chuck. They know we're coming. We didn't have that long of, of a discussion. And... He says, you seen the guns? I said, no. So what were they doing when you left? I said, well, they were there with, you know, probably reading the Bible. And he says, uh, the guys want to know what he was wearing. And I said, black shirt, black pants, jeans. And he says, okay. And he hung, hangs up. And that was it. That was the conversation with Sarah. But I went ahead and got in and took off for the uh, command post to catch Sarah. But got back, I rushed back to the command post and when I walked in, I said, where's Chuck, where's Chuck? He said, well, they're, they're on the way to the compound. And man, I just blew up, I just blew up. I told him, why, why? I told him, I told him they know we're coming. 
why is they, why are they going in? And I said, can, can I talk to them? And, just, and they told me it was too late. They were under fire and there was a big shootout. And man, I just, I broke down, went outside, started crying. Uh, I knew what was happening, nothing I could do. This I never said to anybody, I never told anybody. Because it's hard to believe for, for for people hard to believe. But what I decided to do was get in my truck and just haul ass to the compound. And as I got to the compound and just floorboarded to crush right through the compound. And maybe cause it was a flimsy place as it was anyway. So I figured I would just cause as much damage as I could and maybe help the guys out somewhere. And, uh, and as it turned out, and the, and the roadblock stopped me, the DPS roadblock. I begged them to let me through. They wouldn't let me through. Uh, in fact, it was a friend of mine that I knew, Nino uh, Martinez. He's passed away since then. And uh, he asked me nicely, please, Robert, get out of the truck. Please get out of the truck. We don't want to get in there and take you out and cuff you. So voluntarily just got out of my truck and they sat me down and told me, please don't get up, stay there. And I was so, I mean, so depressed then because there was nothing I could do. Finally, they called for a ceasefire. It was like four hours later. They, they said, okay, to, uh, we need ambulance to go in there and take out some, some wounded. And, uh, the ambulance people did not want to drive in. The ones that were, the ambulance over there just said no. They were afraid they'd get shot. So Dave said, well, we'll take it. So Davey got in the front and I got in the back. So we drove the ambulance to into the compound. Wow. And, when, and uh, what was that like riding in that ambulance, you know, being behind well, the it wheel was just, of it? I was in the back thinking, my mind was just, you just can't imagine, Tiller. I mean, everything had gone to hell. You know, uh, I had told them not to do it. They still do it. And I was still thinking about all this. And here we are now going into the compound to take out what we thought was one or two wounded agents. So we got in and uh, oh, it was like, my gosh, it was, we saw agents carrying other agents. I mean, there were something being dragged. The the dead were being dragged, and it's something you just don't don't forget. They were just, and they come to the ambulance, and the first thing they do, they give me Steve Willis and put him on my lap, and I grab him and I was holding him, and that ambulance filled up like quick, and then some more vehicles came in and took more of the agents out, and they all went out to 2491 where the triage was set up. And everybody got uh, unloaded. They took Willis from me, and uh, I got down. And and I remember I squatted down right in the middle of 2491. And I remember all the agents just some giving CPR. I tried some trying to, you know, bandage the wounded. And uh, soon after that, Davey comes to me. He says, "We need your truck." He says, "We need to put the dead into the truck." to keep them from the sight of the news people that were flying around. And I said, okay, let's do it. So we, we went and we got the uh, agents, put them all in the back of my truck. 
and drove down to a little bit to uh, almost the entrance of the uh, E Ranch that owned all that land, including the uh, UC house that we were at. And waited there for maybe, I don't know, an hour. We lined up. Like an honor, like an honor guard type. Like an honor guard, yep. Yeah, and I uh, opened the, the tailgate to the truck, and uh, one by one, we took them out, and we said their names as each one came out. The medevac was already there, so we took them out to the medevac, and then they they took them. When I went back to the truck, I looked into the the back of the truck, and it was like a sponge. I mean, a sponge of blood. I mean, as I was moving stuff around, I mean, it's amazing. You, you couldn't write a better script if it was a story. There at the corner was the Bible that I was using at the compound. And it was open, laying flat, and I got the Bible, and it was open on the book of Revelation. Just think, all right? All this is going through, and that darn thing was open in the book of Revelation. Wow. So I got the Bible. I looked at it. God, you know, had blood and stuff on it. If you go back into it, the destruction, the death of all the people, you know, in, in that book talks about all that. So I walked out some away from the truck and I threw the Bible as far as I could. I threw it. And I said, how, Lord, can you let good men like this die at the hands of people like this? But in reality, Tiller, my ATF career ended the first day I entered that compound, the way I look at it. Once I agreed to this thing and I went into that compound, my career ended right there. Because of everything that happened afterwards, it's kind of years, years went by because of of lawsuits and stuff that were going on. You know, guys got replaced. And after all that was over with, then they concentrated on me, you know, just pushed me out. Why? They uh, they said I was unstable and suicidal. <laughs> and that's what they used. I could have fought them, but I was tired and I said, you know, what the heck. Were you and unstable and suicidal? I was suicidal at for, for a while. I really was. But it kind of stayed with me. You know, I had problems sleeping. And like my wife said, I was a basket cake. And then I was. The, the point was that I kind of blamed myself for a long time because I didn't know all the investigations that were going on behind the scenes. Uh, you know, very few people spoke to me. It was like I was an outcast. You know, and, I, and, I, and I really felt that maybe I, sh I should have done more to stop it. And at the same time, you know, that was a very hard assignment. It was impossible. Just, just think about it, Tiller. Just think about it, what, what I went through to get in there. Every time I went in there, it was dangerous for me. But the worst time was on the day before the raid and on the day of the raid, when they asked me to go in and I told them I couldn't, that I shouldn't, but they didn't take that into account. Later, they tried to say that I was, didn't want to go in, that I was like scared or, you know, I didn't want to follow orders anymore. The thing was, 
I had told them why I didn't want to go in there, but they used that against me too. So the last two days that I went in were the, the most dangerous. I was lucky, and to this day, and I told them, Koresh let me out. He let me go. Just by the way he spoke to me, by the way he came to talk to me to say goodbye, I knew that he let me go. I was lucky. Well, you know, I, I think it's important to say, and I'm sure that you've said this to yourself and, and, and hopefully heard it from others before, but you did everything you could and you did nothing wrong. And I mm -hmm. hope that you know that in your heart and that you feel good about it. Well, yeah. well, thank you. Tiller, I want you to do me a favor. Yep. Okay, do me a favor. It's, it's the only thing I ask. The other people that I've spoken to some, the story never came out. It, I, they always gave me like maybe, what, 15 seconds <laughs> out, of, out of whatever time I gave them. All I ask of you is whatever you do, tell it the way I told you. Whatever you and I spoke about, that's actually the way it happened. There's still a lot that, that you, know, you and I have to sit down for like maybe five hours to get everything. But just, just tell the story, you know. <laughs> like I, told I give you. you my word on that. I yeah. give you my word yeah. on that. And, and I'll be happy with that. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate you, Robert. All right. Alrighty. Be good. Bye. Robert Rodriguez wasn't the only one whose life was profoundly affected by what happened at Waco. Next week, we'll turn to the stories of John McElmore, the brave local reporter who caught the story of a lifetime and then found himself at the center of the hurricane known as Waco, as well as the story of David Thibodeau, who first met Koresh in Hollywood when he went to play drums and found himself as one of the last people to walk out as the compound burned behind him. See you next time on Waco, American Apocalypse, the companion podcast. Waco, American Apocalypse is a production of Netflix, Original Productions, and Tillerman Films. Producer is Jacob Miller. Executive producers are Tiller Russell, Brian Lovett, Jeff Hassler, and Jennifer Dugan. Edited by James Carroll. Special thanks to Lee Hancock.